Good morning and welcome back. I'm Rick Brown. Thank you for joining us on today's Seek First podcast, where we share biblical truth and engage in today's culture. Take a minute to subscribe to the Seek First podcast. Thanks, everybody. Stick around. I think you're going to be encouraged. Spending time with the Lord will be the best part of your day. So let's get ready. Grab your Bible, prepare your heart and mind. Let's go. Good morning and welcome back. I'm Rick Brown. Thank you for joining us on today's Seek First podcast, where we share biblical truth and engage in today's culture. Take a minute to subscribe to the Seek First podcast. Thanks, everybody. Stick around. I think you're going to be encouraged. Spending time with the Lord will be the best part of your day. So let's get ready. Grab your Bible, prepare your heart and mind. Let's go. Going through the Anchored series, we're in the book of Acts. And if you'll stand with me, we're going to read Acts opening in chapter 17, as we look at our message, explosive results. Acts chapter 17, verse one. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollyana, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, he went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, a great multitude of devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Father, thank you for your incredible word. Thank you for your incredible grace. We pray that you'd open our eyes of our heart and our understanding that we would receive from you now food and nourishment for our own souls. We also thank you, Lord, for the generous blessing that you poured out upon us financially and your people as they give. May you bless them abundantly. We ask that we could expand your kingdom through the gifts and finances you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As we look at explosive results, there's four steps that Paul the Apostle in this chapter on his second missionary journey goes through as he comes into each community. There's place of exchanging ideas, explaining those ideas, experiencing the results or fruit of that, and then exiting there, usually at night or on the run, threatened with uh, some kind of dangerous experience. Paul the Apostle's experience over and over in every community as he comes in and he shares this message and the impact's huge, there's a revival. And a few weeks later, there's a riot. You get excited about Jesus. You show up on Monday morning. You start telling your friends over break time about your newfound faith with Jesus. And after a month, you're now persona non grata in the break room. You fell in love with Jesus a month before Thanksgiving. You showed up and let everybody of the family know. 
and next month, you were, or next year, you were uninvited to Thanksgiving. There's the excitement of revival in the human soul and the explosive results that the gospel brings. It's power. It's dynamic power. But you cannot have the incredible blessings that come with it without the downside. The downside is persecution, hatred, lies, attacks. When I came to Christ, nobody had prepared me for what was coming. <laughs> I didn't grow up in church. I didn't grow up around Christians. I just fell in love with Jesus. I also was not, I, I got saved half drunk after a couple of drug deals on a Sunday afternoon at home alone. So I wasn't connected to a church. I didn't go to a church for six months. I just went to a Christian bookstore, bought a Bible and just started devouring the Bible. And I was so blown away. And God's spirit was working inside my heart. But all my friends that I'd been spending the last 10 years of my life with, I just naturally began to share all of my excitement. And to my absolute dismay, they were not very excited. <laughs> they began to tell me I was a real bummer. I was a real drag. You know, I used to do this with them. But because I wasn't getting hammered with them and doing all this stuff, all of a sudden, things didn't go well. To every action, there is a reaction. And Paul the Apostle is the greatest missionary in human history. Because we have the documents of his journey, as, Paul the, or as Luke, the author of the book of Acts, gives us so incredibly. So each one of us, every day, every week, every month, every year of our lives, has these four experiences depending on where you're at, what God's called you to, how you function in the world. Check it out. First exchanging. We see in verse one, now when they had passed through these communities, they came from Philippi. By the way, when the gospel came to Philippi, it's the first time the gospel showed up on European soil. That's what changed Europe, and you and I are the recipients from a Western civilization that what began to take place. And from Philippi, they travel 100 miles. They're walking uh, on carts, donkeys, whatever. They travel 100 miles, and they end up at Thessalonica. If you go to a tour in the footsteps of Paul, as I have been on, and you go to Philippi, and then they call it Thessaloniki. That's the way you pronounce it. It's a thriving city of some 400,000 there in northern Greece. But when they came there, their place of exchange was that the gospel went to the Jew first and then the Gentile. So if there was a Jewish synagogue, there had to be 10 Jewish men in a community to have a synagogue. So if there was 10 Jewish men. Now Philippi, where they just were, they didn't have 10 Jewish men. How do we know? Because they didn't go to the synagogue. They heard about some Jewish women that prayed by a river, and he went there and he preached to them. And Lydia got saved, a very famous woman that was a, a businesswoman, a seller of purple cloth. So if there wasn't a synagogue, the Jewish people would gather by a body of water, the sense of, you know, life and power. So now they come to Thessaloniki, and they go in the place of exchange of a Jewish synagogue. They can start with all the Old Testament scriptures, there's some 300 prophecies that are all pointing towards Jesus, and it tells us now Paul is going to explain. If you're a visiting rabbi, they had the platform, they had it in their structure of the synagogue. Hey, is there a visiting rabbi? You can speak with us. So Paul, being an incredible rabbi, stands up, and he says in verse 2, he begins to explain what he's there for, what it's all about. 
Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned, the Greek word is he basically dialogued back and forth with them, from the scriptures, explaining, this word means to open up the scriptures to them, and demonstrating, this means proving with evidence from the Old Testament prophecies that, what is the case? That Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus, whom I preach to you, he is the Christ. They had been waiting for the Messiah, all the Jewish people, and so when he comes along and says, hey, Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. He died on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead, and here's all the prophecies. So his starting place was with these Jewish people. Now, what takes place from there? He explains, he opens up the word of God, the Holy Spirit takes this message of the word, it changes them, and this is now the results, both positive and negative, of the experience. Some of them were persuaded in a great multitude of devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. So he had a big harvest in these three Sabbaths of people that believed in Jesus. People can complicate things when it comes to a relationship with God, can't they? They can complicate things about religion. I've talked to people that uh, last year I was at this specific um, kind of uh, official gathering, and I was seated next to a woman, an older woman that's in her late 70s, and we had this conversation. So in that moment, that was my place of exchange, right? I'm next to her. We get to exchange ideas. She had some semblance of a Christian background as a child, though she's never really walked with God. And wherever God places you, for Paul, he would go into a community because you have a cold start, right? He didn't have a lot of relationships, so he just went to a place he could begin to um, exchange ideas. But it happens to me on the airplane. It happens to you at the grocery store, at the park, wherever you go. My daughter's this magnet with two beautiful little kids. She goes to a park, and pretty soon there's another mom there with a couple of kids, and they're sitting next to my daughter in the park, and my daughter's sharing the love of Jesus with them. It just happens like clockwork, but it's really unusual. I mean, it's like God's gift, but the people that he brings into their life are usually disaffected pastor's kids. She's a PK, so she knows the language of PKs. It's like a secret family secret, how this works. And she'll tell me, hey, Dad, I met this new girl. And this is around. I said, don't tell me she's a PK. Yeah, how'd you know? She's like, everywhere she goes, this is what happens. But her place of exchange as a mom is different than an engineer that goes into the office. And he's building relationships with individuals. Each of us are having personal interactions at work, all over the place, and those things that take place. I recently got an Uber uh, trip to the airport, and I was going to be in the car for some 46 minutes, and this girl was from Haiti, and, and so we just began to share, and I just began to share with her, and she was a young, struggling, uh, married gal, and I was just sharing with her about the love of Jesus. She's a captive audience, right? She wants, she wants me to give her a star at the end of the trip. <laughs> she wants me to give her a tip at the end. That's not why I'm doing it, but I just love people, and Jesus' love flows through us to share with them. And so I was just encouraging her with all kinds of different aspects of things. And at the end, because, you know, I'm a little pressed for time, I'm going to jump out and grab my suitcase and run in LAX. And she goes, pasta, pasta, please, please pray for me. So I said, okay. So I, I leaned, up, leaned up and put my hand on her shoulder, and I just prayed for her in that moment. 
It's amazing how many times I've shared the love of Jesus in cabs, Ubers. I remember driving through, <laughs> we're in India, I'm in um, Mumbai, and I'm on a trip, and this guy's taking me. Now, because of the nature, India is a pretty hostile place now towards Western Christianity. And, and so we had very specific uh, we were dedicating churches, but we had to do it elusively because this LRA, this radical Hindu group, had announced they were going to beat us all up if we showed, I mean, they were watching for us. So we're like trying to be elusive. And, and, but finally, it's the last time I'm going to the airport. It's a cab driver. I no longer care. So I start sharing with him. And the exchange, you see, India is the land of 10,000 gods. They worship everything. He said, it's so bad here. He said, we recently were marching around this idol in worship of this false god. He didn't call it a false god, but it's a false god. And, and they're marching around. He said, my sister was in front of me, and she stumbled. And when she stumbled, she flipped up a stone out of the uh, kind of a paving work. And it flipped up. And when it flipped up, it landed in an unusual way against, uh, leaning up against the idol. In the course of this group of, you know, like 100 people chanting and worshiping around this false idol, when he came back around, the people behind them that saw the sister do it began to worship that stone. Because it had flipped up, they watched what happened, and because the way it landed, they began to, they had they have fruit and garlands and things that they, they worship and they leave at the feet of the monkey god and various things. And... He had been disaffected, but his sister had been praying for him. She had become born again about six months before that. And he says, you tell me strange things. These are the things my sister's been telling me for six months. And you know his sister's praying, Lord, bring other Christians into my brother's life. But we're on our way to the airport. And I'm like, they can beat me up if they can catch me. I'm, not, I'm, I'm getting out of the country. <laughs> so... The responsiveness that takes place is faith and salvation, but then the hostility that happens in verse 5. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason. They attacked the house of Jason because this is a person that appears has become a convert, and Paul and Silas are staying there. So they're actually trying to get Paul and Silas, but Jason's the only one home. They're out doing something else. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. I love this charge that they think is an insult. We have not turned the world upside down, brothers and sisters. We have turned it right side up, right? Because sin turned it upside down. It was inverted because of sin. Adam and Eve had a great world, and they ruined it for us. Right? Somebody told me when I get to heaven, I'm going to punch Adam right in the mouth. I said, you leave Adam alone, because if he hadn't messed it up, you and I would have. So you just leave Adam alone. Right? People have been talking trash about Adam for a very long time. But it become inverted. You can look at the world and everything that God loves, this world in political correctness hates. And everything that God hates, this political world loves. It's the exact opposite. It's inversion. So when you come to Jesus, it becomes 
a radical rectifying. It happened in your life, right? Your life was upside down and all jacked up. You were a dumpster fire. Well, maybe you weren't. Maybe you were one of those good Christians. I was a total dumpster fire, right? I tell my testimony to people and they go, they're not even saying, they go, you needed Jesus. You know, like, people like you need Jesus. Society's better because you came to Jesus. So the results are so transformative in that process that my life was turned right side up the way it always should have been. I'm just cruising through life, right, walking in the footsteps of my stepdad. This is ex-con, convict. He's in prison for stabbing a guy five times. I'm going to court for grand larceny at the age of 15. One thing after another, it's just like, I'm going down that road. I cared nothing for school. The only reason I was in school was for sports and girls. I never took a book home from my freshman year all the way through my senior year. Honestly, this is really bad, but this is how you grow up when you're white trash. I didn't even know what a GPA was till my senior year. Somebody said, what's your GPA? I said, what's that? (laughs) Out of 64 graduating students, I was like 62. I had no desire whatsoever. And two years later, when I give my life to Christ, my life has turned around. Now I'm a voracious learner. I'm devouring books. I'm, I'm, I, want to work, I want to accomplish things. All I wanted to do before then is get high and eat munchies, right? How's a person's world go from being a heroin addict to helping others get delivered from heroin? How's a person go from being a sex worker to a wife and a mom that wants to honor God with her life? How's that happen? The gospel of Jesus, that's how it happens. Only the power of a true and living God can come inside of somebody and genuinely transform them from the inside out. Because this is what religion does. Religion wants you to have outward conformity with no inward transformation. If you dress right, if you have the right haircut. Now, I've always had this haircut, so people always mistaken me because there's, as a Mormon, they're like, you're like a Mormon missionary. And I'm like, well, I got the haircut, but it's just a whole different thing, okay? Right? But, so you've got to have the right haircut. You've got to look a certain way. You've got to dress a certain way and talk a certain way for the conformity of outward religion. But it doesn't change anything in the deadness of your soul. Going to church can help you grow if you love Jesus, but it will not change you just by coming into this presence because it's just outward pressure. You have to have an inward transformation. And that's what they were witnessing. Everywhere the gospel went, it seemed like everything, holy cow, these Christians have changed our community, right? It, it hurts the business down at the bar. <laughs> the drug dealers, they, they don't have nearly as much business anymore because Christians are getting saved. Through the revivals of Charles Finney in the early, in the 1800s of America, he would come into town and preach in a community and so many people were impacted by the gospel that the bars went out of business when he left. Did the world get turned upside down or did it get turned right side up? 
Don't you think wives were happy that their husband was coming down home with his paycheck and putting food on the table and paying the rent rather than blowing it all down there? Yet it's strange, isn't it, that the progressive left, those who hate God, think we're the problem with the country? But everywhere we go, there's law and order, there's peace, there's harmony, there's blessing, there's children playing on the street safely. Why? Because these are all things that God creates through our lives. Though the charge, even though the word Christian was used in the beginning as a derogatory statement, they're a bunch of Christians, they think they're these little Jesuses, and it becomes a badge of honor, right? It becomes a badge of honor. In verse 7, it says, Jason has harbored them. This is the insults continue on. These are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. They had to, it was basically, they had to post bail. They had to put up money. They had to put up resources saying, okay, we're not going to do this. We're not going to make a disturbance again. It wasn't their fault. Even though they were the victims of the attack from these people, it tells us that the Jews that did not believe were envious. Why were they envious? Because all of a sudden, there's a massive movement of crowd that's following Paul the Apostle in this message. And people don't listen to them like that. People don't come to their church service like that. People are not following them in droves. And so they were filled with envy and wanted to shut their mouths. It's the same exact thing. The religious leaders in Jesus' day, they were envious of his influence. So when they handed him over to Pilate, Pilate had the insight. He's a pagan guy, and he goes, I know that you guys are handing me over just because you're envious of his influence. Where there's selfish ambition, there's every evil thing. And sometimes people just hate you because Jesus lives inside of you. I've had people at work sites that just absolutely hate me because... There's no other way. I've never done anything to offend them. I'm just showing up at work with a smile on my face and working hard all day long, but they're just so disgusted with me because I have a love and a joy and a peace, and they've discovered I'm a Christian, and I make them sick. It's like, dude, I've never done anything to you in my whole life except be kind. How are you today? Need any help? What's going on? Isn't it a weird thing? When you are hated by the world... It's not you that are being, is being hated. They hate Jesus inside of you. They hate the goodness of Jesus that's shining out of your life. It's like that story of Billy Graham. He was at a celebrity golf tournament, and another guy uh, was, had been golfing. He got paired with him in the golf cart, and at the end, they went their separate ways, and this guy was so enraged, he took his golf bag, and he threw it out into the pond, and his friend said, what are you, what, what's your problem? He goes, oh, that Billy Graham makes me so sick. I had to be with him for 18 holes on this, you know. And he goes, what did he say to you? He goes, he didn't say a word. <laughs> right? One day, I invited a guy to church. His name was Joey. And Joey was the nicest, most laid back. We were tile setters. So we were working together in Las Vegas on this big Flamingo Hilton job site. And I, I'm, I'm on fire for Jesus. He knows I'm a Christian. He goes, okay, Rick, all right. I said, Joey, come on. Come to church with me. I'll take you to lunch. He goes, okay, oh, whatever. He didn't want to come. Anyway, we come. And he is the, I mean, honestly, he's just one of the nicest guys you would ever meet. And we're sitting there. And pretty soon I can just feel this vibe 
And I look at Joey while the preacher's preaching, and he's just like sneering at this guy. And I kind of lean back a little bit, conscious of everybody around us, because he's like, I said, Joey, is something wrong? These are some of my early experiences as a Christian, so I don't really know what's going on. I, Joey, is something wrong? He goes, I hate that guy's guts. I said, do you know him? He says, no. <laughs> How can you hate somebody who's got you? <laughs> no, right? This is the spiritual conflict you and I are in. You see, where there's explosive results, people are getting saved and changed, and people are filled with hatred. So when it comes either way, in either package, just go, that's part of the package, right? <laughs> if we're so worried about making friends that will put our light, as Jesus says, under a basket, don't do that. Just let your light shine. And, and if your friends don't want to hang with it, you'll get some better friends, right? I don't care if they're, I had childhood friends, I mean lifelong friends that I lost in the process of coming to Jesus. So Paul wasn't there, Silas wasn't there, so what do they do with him? Now after, he's, <laughs> they've had the place of exchanging things in the synagogue, he explained the gospel, then there's the experience of the results, people got saved, people got upset, then he exits the town. This happens over and over. In verse 10 it says, then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night. Usually they're running through the night to save their lives. <laughs> that probably hasn't happened to you recently. Right, the family was going to hang you, or people at work were going to do it. I've had people to threaten to beat me up and various things, but I've honestly, I've always thought it would be cool to have a scar for Jesus. Actually, but I've never taken a good beating for my relationship with Jesus. But the next community, he does the same thing. So the results in Berea, exchanging in verse ten. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. So what do they do? They flee in the night from this community that now is so hostile they have to run for their lives and they go to the next community. Do you know how to exit also? Do you know how to dialogue with someone about the love of Jesus and open the scriptures to them for understanding and then let the Holy Spirit bring the results and then when it all shuts down and they no longer want to talk to you about it, do you know how to exit that and not keep, Jesus gave us a specific passage, casting your pearls before swine. Don't do that. Don't give what is holy to the dogs. Don't do that. You shared the faith in Jesus Christ. You're praying for them. And now you exit. You step back from that relationship. And you're launching, I call it, long-range bombs of prayer that are just like blowing up their life. Okay, God, now bring other Christians with the same message into their life. You have to know how to exit graciously, just like you need to share graciously in relationships, at a job situation, in family situations. You need to know how to move in and share the hope and the message of Jesus and how to move out when the doors close down. Some Christians don't get that. It's your job to bring them all into the kingdom of heaven. No, 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 no. It's your job to share the message. Let the Holy, only the Holy Spirit saves people. You and I don't save anybody. <laughs> Only the Holy Spirit can do that. That takes all the pressure off me. Yeah, I shared with a whole bunch of people. Any of them believe? I don't know. Right? The, God's going to do his thing. Let God, let God be the Lord. And you just be his servant. You're just going through life. You're just sowing, watering, sowing, watering. So every now and then you get a harvest. Hey, I prayed with this person that came to Christ. Sowing and watering, sowing and watering. It makes you much more joyful 
And I also am not hanging on to relationships in the sense that I'm more afraid of what they think of me than what God wants of me. I want to live for God and honor God. Therefore, if his message offends them, I can't do anything about that. You mean to tell me that Jesus is the only way to heaven? Yeah. How arrogant of you. I said, hey, I didn't say it. I'm just giving a book report. That's what Jesus said. <laughs> right? I didn't say it. He said it. But I believe it. So, in this place of exchange, where does he go when he goes to Berea? Now, this journey, so you know, this is, at, they left at night, remember? It's a 44-mile walk to Berea. Think about this. I mean, when's the last time you went for a 44-mile walk? <laughs> through the night to the next day to show up at a church. Now, if you went through this enough, wouldn't you just go, you know, I don't know if this is worth it. I'm on the run all the time. When's the last time you shared with a family member, a friend, or a close associate, and the reaction was so harsh, so mean-spirited, that you told yourself, I'm never going to share with someone again? Hurts, doesn't it? Rejection hurts. I think we're weird if we, you all like to go through life getting rejection. I mean, that's, what kind of a weird person in their psychology thinks that way. Nobody that I know. I want to be liked. You want to be liked. But I realize that for the sake of the gospel, for the most important decision for the soul of a human that is going to go to heaven or go to hell forever, it's worth the risk. If you don't understand the gravity of eternity that the Bible clearly portrays, then it's easier to have a lackadaisical perspective on it. But we understand the gravity of that, especially the people you love the most. You want, your, you want your spouse, you want your kids, you want your grandkids, you want your mom and dad, you want everybody you know to know Jesus, right? You do. But there can be some tension. My father-in-law, hard old crusty booger, he was, first of all, he hated my guts in the time that I dated my wife, which I don't blame him. I was the town um, black sheep of the community. And if I showed up on his, uh, if somebody like me showed up on my doorstep for my daughter, I'd have shot him. But, <laughs> so I totally get that. Um, but then I became a Christian and I went to another extreme. So he didn't get either one. The first one, he had a lookout with his other police officers because he's the sergeant of police in our local locale. One night I got a busted in a brawl. I was fighting with three guys. Cop handcuffs me, throws me in the back of the cop car, and then I think, oh, that kind of dawns on me because I'm dating Tammy. And I said, uh, is Sergeant Davis the watch uh, commander tonight? And the guy turns around and he goes, it was, this guy's name's Officer Hall. He goes, no, Brown, you got it easy tonight. And first of all, I didn't tell him my name. Why does he even know my name? And because my father-in-law had put the word out. And they're watching me. So then I become a Christian, and then I start trying to share with him, because I care about him. His name's Ron. And, and one day I was talking to him, and I talked to him. I took about, you know, Two to three minutes, she kind of shared my testimony. Hey, I've never really shared with you exactly what's up. So I shared my testimony with him. We're sitting side by side in the yard in a picnic chair. 
And at the end, kind of like, I was just waiting for his response. He listened, he acted like he didn't hear me the entire time. The guy has amazing hearing, even to this day. And I said, so? And he goes, what? I didn't hear a thing you said. I'm like, oh, it's going to be like that. Uh, it's just like he wouldn't even enter into the dialogue. So my wife and I prayed for him for 16 years before he finally gave his life to Jesus. And Tammy's mom, years before she gave her life to Jesus. And the cool thing was when the grandkids came along, they preached the gospel to grandma and grandpa, and there was no resisting. <laughs> We're driving down the road. Yeah, amen. My son's seven years old, and all of us are in the car. So there's, there's six of us in the car going to dinner. My wife, our two kids, grandma and grandpa, and it's dead silent in the car. My son's seven. Grandpa. Yes, Caleb. Are you going to heaven? <laughs> and the whole car, you could just feel it. <laughs> like there's pressure in this. But my, my son's such like a childlike faith. He said, I really want you to be there, Grandpa. He pauses for a long time. He goes, well, I don't want to go there today, Caleb. Kind of like, I don't want to die today. <laughs> that was in the fall. And then my son, he uh, was working. So we were doing this allowance thing at our home where they made so much for their allowances. And he was saving up this money. And he had saved up like 60 bucks. I said, what are you going to do with your 60 bucks, Caleb? He goes, I'm buying Grandpa a Bible for Christmas. <laughs> so cool. It wasn't long. I mean, he was toast after that. Like the kids. And so I asked his uh, grandma when she had given her life to Christ, and she told me straight up, it was Caleb. Caleb did it. <laughs> Caleb just. <laughs> they could say things to their grandparents that were totally, absolutely true and simple, and it doesn't matter if you're seven years old. The explosive results of Jesus' love, death, burial, and resurrection transforms people's lives. And his grandparents are going to heaven because of his witness in the family. Amen. Yeah, give him a hand. Because I was relatively ineffective. <laughs> it's the funniest thing in the world that the biggest moron for a son-in-law in the history of the planet can produce the smartest, the brightest, the most good-looking grandkids of all history. It happens over and over in life. You see, it's a, it's a phenomenon. You, you know, wait, wait till you have married kids and you, you get what I'm talking about. Okay, I digress. What were we talking about anyway? All right, so he comes to Berea. The synagogue's the place of exchange. Verse 11, he explains, but this is a different crowd. You see, if I go preach next... Um, uh, at the end of this month, in four weeks, I'll, I'll be preaching in New York. We'll see what the audience is like there. You see, every group that you preach to has a different uh, attentiveness or, you know, some people are taking a nap like they are in the service right now. It's okay. <laughs> I'm a good sedative. I know some, you know, it's, I could listen to Rick or get Ambien. Which should I choose? I'm going to listen to Rick. It's all right. But check out this crowd because every preaching exchange, every teaching exchange with a congregation is 50-50. I can only prepare and bring my part. You bring the other 50%. Because the receptivity of the message that's transmitting, you can have a radio transmitter, but only if you have a good receiver 
can you get a clear signal, correct, right? So it, it, you have to have the good, clear transmission and the good reception. So it says in verse 11, these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. You see, they were hungry. They were on the edge of their seat. They were taking notes when Paul was opening up the scriptures and pointing to this prophecy and taking them to Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant of Jesus, taking them to Psalm 22 about his hands and feet being pierced and them casting lots for his clothes at the foot of the cross and him crying out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Paul's preaching through all these things and the people are taking notes and they go home and they unroll their scrolls, and they go, wow, he's right. That's what this is saying. The people at Thessalonica were not like that. So you come in here, service after service, some of you come in like those of Thessalonica. Like, yeah, whatever, do your thing. You're going a little long, it's lunchtime. And other people come in like, I want the word of God to speak to me. And they're not duped by any message because they themselves are studying to make sure that what you're saying is correct. It's really important that we are students of the scriptures because otherwise you can make the Bible say pretty much anything you want to and lead people astray. You really can. So you have to know. Nobody can protect you from that if you don't do your part. And the, they were more fair-minded, it says, those who are in Berea, because they were eager to receive the word, but they searched the scriptures to make sure these things are accurate. Then there was the experience that we have in verse 12. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. You see, these people remind us of the Antifa and the Black Lives Matter of today, right? They find out where the message is and they're gonna show up and shut it down. And it's a mob mentality and it's, it's very intimidating, obviously, right? We were gonna, uh, I was going to an event with Charlie Kirk. We were gonna be in Eugene, Oregon, which is super woke, right? And so he was gonna speak for the university campus and he had to move uh, the event five times because every venue he secured Antifa and Black Lives Mattered threatened that venue saying they're gonna burn down their facility and attack their employees. So they just canceled the, the, uh, the thing. So it moved one, twice, three times, four times. Free speech and just going somewhere and sharing your ideas is a thing of the past in some communities. Even my home state of Idaho, he could not go to, on the Boise State campus because they would not let him on the Boise State campus because wherever there is that, that collegiate academic hatred of, uh, it's supposed to be the place of exchange of ideas. It's the university. <laughs> Even if you disagree with people, do you know that free speech gives people the right in America to say stupid things? Right, even if people are idiots, they have free speech to be idiots. <laughs> and if they go to a venue and they're idiots, whether anybody comes or not, who cares? But they, when they heard now, realize this is 44 miles away. So they're gonna, they're, their hatred of Paul and the gospel is so inflamed as a mob that they walk 44 miles to attack him and to stir everybody up. 
because it's not enough. You see, they don't just attack the person, they usually wrap it in a package of lies. Like, they're saying, oh, they're preaching against Caesar because they're saying there's another king. Yeah, King Jesus, our, Je our Jesus is king, but he, he's in heaven. He's, he's not threatening Caesar's throne. He's not, he's not coming with a coup against his, his throne. But they wrap it in a package as a lie. When we stand up for biblical explanations from a worldview of sexuality, they immediately wrap us in this package of a lie. They're transphobe, homophobe. If we think, hey, you know, it's a good thing for countries, all countries, not just America, all countries, to have a secure border so they know who's coming in and going out, right? So if terrorists are going to come in, we have some kind of uh, safeguard to be able to have background or IDs or various things. But if we say that we're some far right wing extremists because we think countries should have borders, we're xenophobes. The intellectual gymnastics, but the left, if you can't defend your case, the only thing you have left is lies, intimidation, and physical threat of violence. Right? Because they can't win the argument in the exchange of ideas with truth. So, there's nothing new under the sun. And when Paul the Apostle came to town, it was a very exciting time. You're not sure what's going to happen. But people are going to get saved. And then people are also going to get fired up. So, it tells us in verse 14, because these people came to Berea even though it told us some people believed. Then immediately in verse 14, we have the exit. The brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. We'll stop there. These first 15 verses cover two communities where the explosive results, both positive and negative, of the gospel take place. And in our real life world, you're not traveling from city to city as a missionary, likely. I have done that in places, and I have also uh, been, had to be elusive when we were dedicating these three churches that we were a part of in India. The precious Christians these little churches, I mean, the people are so poor. It's like in the slums. They scrapped, uh, scraped and saved all their, their dollars to build this room. It'd be basically the size of your living room. And they can pack like 50 people into the room. They have nothing. I mean, it, it's just slums. But they are filled with such joy in their love for Jesus because Jesus has changed their life. But when we are going to dedicate their brand new churches because of the threat of the LRA, which is a radical Hindu group that had threatened them, if they did it, they were going to show up and beat us all up. We had to show up. We couldn't put out a flyer like, oh, we're going to do this this time. So you know what the churches did in all three of these churches? The congregation gathered at 6 in the morning, and they waited until 10 o'clock at night, just praying and worshiping through the day from 6 in the morning to 10 at night so that we could show up at any moment and dedicate the service, which we did. And the people never caught us doing that three, these three churches. But when you saw the radiance and the joy of the people worshiping Jesus. Now there, they didn't even have instruments. They don't have a sound system. They don't, their their, their uh, instruments are clapping and singing. It's just so much joy. And in that experience of that joy, 
realizing there's this threat of this group, when we left after the third church, I asked the pastor, the local guy, Guna, and I said, uh, Pastor Guna, I said, isn't that great? We, they didn't catch us at any of the three churches. And, and he shook his head, oh, oh, Pastor Rick. Pastor Rick, they will beat them up this week. And I said, what? You see, it's old school. The women go in the morning to get their water at the local well. He says, the women will beat her, the pastor's wife, you know, when she goes to the well. And they will beat the pastor. They will beat them. It just didn't happen while we were here. And you see the joy of this group of people. They were undaunted. They'll take the beating. How many of you would show up here consistently on the weekend if there was a threat of a beating? Right? There are places in the world, we have this, this soft, almost effeminate, spineless version of Christianity in America now. But there's no courage. There's no boldness. There's no fearlessness. Because I promise you, as the elevation of the explosive results of the gospel in your life, in my life, in our families, in this congregation, in our community, there's going to be, as America was under the sway of Christianity from coast to coast for all of these years, in a large way that maintained peace and harmony. But now at this tipping point, Jim Caviezel came out, the guy that played Jesus in The Passion, very strong Catholic brother in the Lord, said, the only person it is lawful to attack, malign, and persecute in our nation are Christians. And it's fair game for everybody. And he's right. I say that, praise God, today, look at guys, nobody's pounding on the door. We're not running at midnight going 44 miles trying to get out of Dodge. Praise God, enjoy your hot dogs this weekend. <laughs> Amen? For the freedom in America. But because of that, the faith that we have is what has brought the freedom. But as soon as the faith in the country is diminished, comes the darkness, the bondage, the oppression, and the violence. We are getting ready to head into the next 20 years of the most unprecedented time in our nation of a new civil unrest, a new civil war of ideas, the idea, ideology. So let's be in love with Jesus every day and let him do what he's gonna do. And I'm, I still might get out of this life with one or two really good scars on, on Jesus's behalf, right? I've always wanted that, don't know how I'm gonna get it, but uh, take the, the blow in the face whatever it might be. Because I discovered in my own personal life, and I hope you have too, I as a human need something so deep and transformative inside of me that is living, worth living and dying for to live my life. That's what I need, a sense of meaning and purpose. I love God, God loves people, therefore I wanna be a vessel for that process. But God has to get such a radical hold of my heart that I, I'm willing to live for Jesus and I'm willing to die for Jesus and take abuse or be maligned or be lied about or whatever. And obviously, I wanna love people with the truth. It's not like I'm trying to be offensive. 
It's just that the message is offensive to this generation. And I believe sincerely, until you're willing and ready and passionate to have something you're willing to live and die for, you're not alive. You're just not alive. You are not gonna live the life that God has designed you to live. Until you're worth, it's worth it. Because think about how many things you could walk away. I don't need that. I don't need that. I don't need that. But our faith in Jesus, I can't take it from us. But we can self-censor ourselves into silence and ineffectiveness and put a basket over our light and stop having speech that's seasoned with salt to give grace to the hearers that we come in contact with. May the Lord help us by his spirit. Give us the anointing of his spirit that gives us boldness to speak for him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we ask in your kindness that you would fill us right now, all your people. Fill us with the power of your spirit to have the boldness to be a witness. That's why you said you were going to give us the anointing of your spirit. Grant to your servants that we might speak with all boldness the love of Jesus. Lord, may you do the supernatural around our lives. May our message be authenticated with supernatural, miraculous processes around us that you might receive all of the glory. Lord, we confess that apart from your spirit and the courage that you infuse into us, Lord, we're all cowards. We're all afraid to speak, to act, to serve, to do what so often we know we need to do the right thing. Lord, I ask that you would help us and on this 4th of July weekend, when we think of those who signed the Declaration of Independence and they, they knew that their fortunes, their lives, and their sacred trust, all of it was on the line. When they signed that document, they knew if the British caught them, they would be executed. But for the sake of freedom and liberty, they made that decision. And Lord, we have the sake of liberty and freedom that Jesus, you alone can bring because whoever the sun sets free is free indeed. That's worth so much for the freedom of our soul. Lord, I just pray for my brothers and sisters and some are struggling in the backwash of people, someone rejecting them, someone attacking them on social media, coworker no longer speaking to them, family members that have rejected them, all because Jesus now lives inside of them. Lord, I pray that you would be their comfort. You would bring them into deep and meaningful relationships that will soothe that, the wounds of rejection and heartache in their lives. And Lord, rather than hinder us, may it propel us to be more free vessels to share your love with the lost world. We ask it in your name.